0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for premium subscribers. And we're here with RFK assassination researcher Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And we're here to discuss a recent decision by the parole board in California to recommend... Parole for Sirhan Sirhan after serving more than 50 years behind bars. Lisa, welcome back. How are you?
1: I'm okay, and you were one of the first to suggest that he might actually get paroled, so very good on you there.
0: <laughs> you were the one that I believe that initiated a letter-writing campaign. In hopes of yes, convincing the uh, the parole board that Sirhan Sirhan deserved parole, this is this was his fifteenth or sixteenth attempt at parole. I know that it's only a recommendation; it could right. be overturned. Ultimately, it'll be up to the governor, and this could take another almost two hundred days before this is resolved. Right. What changed this time?
1: So, what changed this time? Two very important developments. One was the appoint or the election of uh, Gascon to the L.A., uh, George Gascon as Los Angeles District Attorney. And in the past, prosecutors have been sent to parole hearings to argue to keep the guy they convicted or the woman they convicted in jail forever. And Gascon says that's not the way the justice system should work. We should allow that people can grow and change and come to feel remorse and truly pay their debt to society and ultimately be released so that's his point of view and for that reason he is now like forbid any prosecutors from los angeles to attending anyone's parole hearing including surhan so that's number one and then number two separately there was a law passed in california recently because our jails are incredibly overcrowded i think i read today they're like 40 percent overcrowded in the sense that there's like all these criminals that they literally can't put in jail because there's no room for them. And so the, the state is really prioritizing the release of elderly people because after a certain age, most people mature and don't commit crimes, you know, that they did in their youth. They're, you know, it's, it's not this, the case that once somebody's a criminal, they're always a criminal. It, statistically, that's literally not the case. Uh, And so the new law required that anyone who was 26 or younger at the time of the assassination and, you know, who served their full sentence, where there is a, a limit to the sentence, should be prioritized for release. So the parole board had to take those two things into account. And then there were three more factors that affected their decision. And one of those was Munir Sirhan, who is the younger brother of Sirhan Sirhan, and Munir had gone to his neighbors, because if Sirhan is freed, he would eventually live with Munir in Pasadena, although both of them have offered to leave the country, you know, if if that makes people feel more comfortable. Uh, but in the interim, he would have to live with his brother for a while, and so Munir went to all the neighbors, because obviously it's important that they feel comfortable with that. Well, Most of the neighbors have lived there forever, and They know Munir, and some of them even remember Sirhan when he was a young kid, and he was always very sweet and polite to them. And so they wrote letters saying they had no problem with him, you know, coming home to live there. And the board specifically cited that as one of the reasons for recommending parole, because it's important that the neighbors are okay with that, right? Absolutely. Right. And then another factor, of course, was Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. wrote a long letter himself. And then his brother, and Robert Kennedy Jr., of course, the direct son of Robert Kennedy, Douglas Kennedy, another son of Robert Kennedy, actually attended the Pearl hearings. They did these things virtually via Zoom, as we are all doing these days in our work lives uh, because of COVID. Uh, But over the computer, he had an exchange with uh, Sir Han, who broke down and cried and really expressed remorse for, you know, all the pain he'd caused the Kennedy family and indeed the country. Douglas was very generous to him and even said, I feel love for you, which brought tears to my eyes when I heard that because that is the most generous comment somebody can make. You know, here you're facing somebody that I believe in Douglas's case. He he does believe that it might be the killer, you know, or is the killer, and he's willing to forgive him anyway. That is exactly what his father would have wanted. Ted Kennedy made that clear when Sirhan was up for the death penalty. Ted Kennedy wrote a very eloquent letter pleading for Sirhan's life and saying, because Robert Kennedy loved life so much and he loved the underprivileged, the dispossessed, people like Sirhan, who you know had a really tough upbringing and a hard life, Kennedy really believed in uh, forgiveness and compassion and generosity embodied that spirit by attending the parole hearing and arguing for Sir Han's release
0: right but so, there were six children that did not support parole and wrote a scathing letter demanding the parole recommendation be reversed so why the split in the family
1: right well why the split in any family I mean I don't know if you've ever had siblings I have we rarely you know agree on everything all three of us you know, that's just, they're individual human beings. They don't work as a unit. So that's one. But two, some of them have looked into it. Bobby Kennedy Jr. has actually done a lot of research on the case already. So he's actually convinced her son of killing his father. And for that reason alone, he wants him released. Uh, like I said, I don't know what this believes. So either he's being incredibly generous and compassionate or maybe he, too, has learned that uh, Robert, that uh, Sirhan was not the killer. Sirhan, of course, was in front of Robert Kennedy from a distance. His gun muzzle, according to the way the police questioned, the only witnesses who saw both Kennedy and Sirhan at the moment of the shooting, because there was only three, I think, that saw the two of them at the same time, all three put the gun muzzle distance at, at three feet. Yet Kennedy was shot behind, and Sir Ann was in front, and Kennedy was shot from a distance of not greater than an inch and a half based on the powder burns behind his ear and under his arm. So, uh, you know, an obvious problem there. Uh, so I don't know which family members have looked into what, but I would also note that Kathleen Kennedy Townsend uh, abstained. She did not sign the letter, and notably... Ethel Kennedy abstained, and Ethel was in the pantry. And in an op-ed today in the Los Angeles Times, or was it yesterday? Yesterday or today, I think it was yesterday. um, Max Kennedy said, well, my mother was there, and she saw Sirhan do it. Well, that's actually not possible, because his mother was behind Robert Kennedy when he was shot. And again, Sirhan was clearly in front of him, uh, very clearly in front of him none of the scenario would make sense if Sirhan was behind him. What happened to a lot of witnesses assumed they saw Sirhan because they were told there was only one gunman. So if they saw a gun, they assumed it was Sirhan. But in the initial interview, some witnesses who could clearly identify Sirhan from photos, meaning they really saw him, and then others who couldn't identify him and weren't sure it was the same guy. And in fact, one witness who you know, is sometimes trotted out, is the wife of George Plimpton, the writer, Freddie Plimpton is her name, and she saw a gun right up next to Kennedy's head, but she could not link that gun to Sirhan. Um, She wasn't sure of the identification, but she was sure that the person she saw had been dressed like the busboys in white uniforms, and she specifically called that out hand was wearing a blue velour zip-up shirt over blue jeans, and so you can't really mistake that for a white busboy uniform. Very different look, right? And uh, there were actually two witnesses who said a man in a white busboy uniform got right up to Kennedy's head and shot him. I believe that is the person who shot the fatal bullet. Under the arm, there were three shots, and there was a guard there who had a gun, whose gun... Was seen. Uh, two witnesses. One witness said it was smoking and pointed at Robert Kennedy when he saw it, which really greatly disturbed him. Because why wasn't it pointed at Sirhan, assuming he had done it? And another witness said the gun, fi- the guard fired his gun three times, and Kennedy was shot under the arm three times. The guard was literally holding Kennedy's right elbow with his left hand at the time of the shooting. No one was in a better place make the underarm shots so I mean and then there was there was a shooter on the table next to Sir Han so some of the bullet trajectories where people assume Sir must have shot them because he was firing in that direction could easily have come from this additional shooter and again really solid witnesses including the the LA Fire Department's own official photographer said the shooter was standing on the table I mean he, he was just as blatant Sir Han was never standing on the table. Sirhan was near the table, and he was shoved onto the table almost immediately. He got off about two shots, according to the guy who captured him first. Carl Euchre's uh, maitre d', who, because he was practically touching Sirhan at that moment when Sirhan fired. He was literally right in front of his belly, and he instantly grabbed him in a headlock and threw his arm and pushed it away. And at the trial, he expanded the two bullets to possibly three shots. But again, Kennedy was shot four times other people were shot once, but Sirhan didn't get more than three shots at anybody. And none of the bullets from Kennedy or any of the other victims could ever be successfully matched to Sirhan's gun, begging the question, whose gun did they match? <laughs> right? right? So there's a lot of evidence that Sirhan was, you know, incredibly enough, a Patsy in a magic act almost, designed to pull focus. So that other shooters could move in and get the job done. And wildly enough, this was a template that was almost used against Jimmy Carter. The FBI stopped a plot that was going to involve one man firing blanks to distract so other shooters could kill Jimmy Carter. So it's not that wild a theory. You know, it's, it's, it's it's the best explanation to fit the facts. Amazingly enough,
0: right now I, I'm not exactly sure how these parole board hearings work in the United States. Uh, do they hear evidence, or do they simply rule on the the character of they, the prisoner? They
1: rule exactly. They do not relitigate the case. That's super important. So whether Sirhan was guilty or innocent, or this is not a hearing of his guilt or innocence. It's only a hearing of how old is he? Does he have a place to live? Has he reformed? Has he expressed remorse? Does he have a clean prison record? Sir Hans never had any incident on his prison record. He's a model prisoner. Um, he was not a violent man going into prison. He's not a violent man now. And, you know, when Robert Kennedy Jr. met him last year, I actually hooked him up with Sir Han's lawyer so he could meet him. And he, I asked him afterwards as he's driving back, and like, what did you think? He's like, he's a gentleman. And I told him I knew he didn't kill my father. So, you know, when there are these the reports of like, oh, you know, Robert Kennedy's children don't want Sir released. released, it's like, well, that's some of Robert Kennedy's children. It's also the ones who've looked into it the least because they are, uh, you know, they don't want to be branded conspiracy theorists. They don't see any reason to challenge it because family, friends were in the pantry. And again, the people that were there, they really thought Sirhan was firing because he was firing a gun. He was right in front of Kennedy and it was the only gun they saw because as it turns out, the other guns were hidden in various ways. So, you know, they saw a gun, Kennedy fell down. In their mind, there's a hundred percent connection, but the ballistic evidence tells a much more troubling story.
0: Right. What about the letter writing campaign that that you began? Yeah. Did that have an Im- yes. impact?
1: I believe it did because the parole board is expressly asked to weigh public sentiment and I know there were literally dozens of letters that came from various people, you know, mostly in California but some from all over the, you know, country, uh asking that Sirhan be paroled and we had expressly asked don't talk about evidence of conspiracy because the board doesn't care. But talk about him being a model uh, prisoner and the new rulings, you know, that he should be released. And his lawyer, I had a conversation with his lawyer probably the day before the parole hearing and she, or two days before. And she's like, Lisa, legally, it's a slam dunk. The way the laws are set up, they literally have to freeze their in if they respect the law. And, you know, she was willing to appeal that, of course, if they were to overrule that. So you mentioned process. So right now we're at the start of like a 120-day cycle. And the the, there were two board commissioners who heard the initial parole hearing. That's the way it always works. Two to three people listen in. And then they make their recommendation. And then there's a 17-member panel that has to review it and make sure they didn't skip any steps, that they did everything right, that they met the requirements of the law, check all the boxes. I'm pretty sure that's going to sail through that period. Um, 120 days, by the way, ends at Christmas Day. Uh, And so then there are 30 more days where the governor can veto it or approve it. And this will be then the next letter-writing campaign. I would like people, if they understand the facts of this case, or if they just respect the law and don't want laws bent because one family is more sad than another, you know, because you is terribly sad, too, about what happened, and I love Robert Kennedy, and obviously no one can argue that, you know, that Sirhan's impact on the world was as great as Robert Kennedy's. But as people, as children of God, as I believe we all are, they are equal, and both were done a great injustice on that day. And I think it's really important that he be freed. It is the law, and I don't like the idea that the governor can overturn on his whim the ruling of 17 people who are all qualified lawyers. I mean, these are all very professional people. It's not a bunch of bumpkins sitting in a kitchen, you know, chewing on this. These are professional lawyers who review the facts of the law. And we are either a nation of laws or we are a nation of men. And we literally fought the American Revolution because they didn't want to be ruled by men. They wanted to be ruled by laws because men can be capricious. I mean, I don't mean men as males, but humans can be capricious or vengeful. So the law has to build in a certain amount of compassion and respect because victims can't be expected to react with compassion. I mean, you know, if my own father had been killed, You know, I might be thinking exactly the same way as the Kennedy children. I do not want to judge any of them. You know, the trauma they went through is incredible. But I do know I have looked into it for 25 years, and I'm 100% certain they have not, because if they had, they would at least know that Sirhan couldn't possibly. It's it's one of the first things you're going to come to if you look into the case, where Sirhan was standing relative to Robert Kennedy and what the autopsy report found. And these two things are irreconcilable. People have tried to suggest, oh, well, no one really saw the moment of the shooting, but that's simply not true. Three people described the scene exactly the same way. And that's not an accident. That's what happened. And so I, I do think it's important to go by the law, not by any of our emotions. My emotions are their emotions. If we follow the law, Sirhan should be paroled at the end of those 120 days. And what an incredible Christmas gift that would be to the world because it would signal America still respects justice and the rule of law is higher than the sorrow of any man or nation.
0: I'm, I'm trying to imagine, uh, I can't, but I'm trying to imagine, if Sir Hanserhan Han is paroled and he is set free, what what what, what life will be well, like for happens? him? What life will be right. like for him?
1: Right. First, he has to go through another like 60-day process of transitioning to actual society again, because obviously he's been in prison more than... He was ever out of prison he was, you know 24 years old when he you know was jailed and he's now been in, in jail like 54 years so there will be some reeducation. but he does have again a, a brother alive who's partially blind and needs help um living in in pasadena and uh sir han's old bedroom his exact same house that he grew up in it's all still there so there will be some comfort and familiarity And a little bit less of a learning curve. It's not, you know, that's not a high tech family. There are no computers there. It's, you know, it's a very modest, simple place where he can live out his final days.
0: I'm sure there will be many people that will that will be very interested in talking to him. Do you think that he'll basically refuse all interviews if he gets out and just say, "I want to put all that behind me"?
1: Yeah, for his sake, I hope he does, because I know if I were in his position, I would not want to talk to anyone. It's like, my God, I just want to live my life, so I really hope people don't bombard him or call him or write him or, like, let him have a little peace at this point in his life. He's 77, and, I mean, I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm pushing 60, and I'm tired, you know? (laughs) when people reach out to me, I don't always have the energy to talk to him. And I imagine by 77, I'll have even less energy. So I I do hope at some point people let it be. And Sirhan and his brother have both said, you know, they'd be willing to leave the country or be deported or whatever it would take uh, for people to feel comfortable about him being paroled.
0: I, I know that you you wouldn't reach out to him, but you would exp- obviously you would uh, respect his wishes. But if you if he said, you know what, Lisa, I will sit down, and I will speak to you and only you, and maybe um, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and, and, you, and you can yeah. ask me anything. What are the what are the three or four questions you'd ask him?
1: You know, it's I thought about that a lot of times because here's the thing: I actually believe that he truly doesn't remember what happened. But the one thing, there is something that's come up recently where somebody showed him a picture of a girl in, in a newspaper and he believed he had had coffee with that woman. That I would like to talk to him about because that seems to be something he remembers. But re, you know, re-interviewing you him about the crime, I mean, he's racked his brain over the years and it's just not there. And you know, I'm not a hypnotist, I, I couldn't put him under and interview him that way, so... You know, I, I don't, I I, honestly, I don't think that's where the focus should be, because I don't think he has the answers. I don't think he knows what part he played in that. And you know, I would rather be able to interview Robert Mayhew's son or something, you know, the son of the actual, you know, planner of the assassination, in my opinion. Uh, Robert Mayhew uh, worked for Howard Hughes but he also was on retainer at the same time for CIA in fact his CIA retainer he renegotiated it in August of 1968 a couple months after Robert Kennedy was killed got some more money out of the CIA and and the CIA had picked Mayhew as their point man to plan the Castro assassination plots why would they pick him unless he already had high-level experience assassinating either heads of state or, you know, hard-to-get-two people. <laughs> you don't pick an amateur to do something like that, right? And somebody, obviously, closed mouth, who would never, ever confess or talk about it. And so uh, Mayhew was connected directly. The people that he knew in the CIA that hired him were the Office of Security people that were running the MK Ultra and other mind-control experiments. And it's very clear to me that Sirhan had been programmed and hypnotized to fire at something in the pantry, not a person. And Dan Brown, a professional hypnotist who's written some of the textbooks used currently to train people in hypnosis, got to interview Sirhan for about 60 hours over a few years, thanks to uh, William Pepper, Sirhan's lawyer. And talking to Dan Brown under hypnosis was able to describe that at one point in the pantry he was pinched by a girl in a polka dot dress and suddenly in his mind he was back at the target range where he had been earlier and he saw the big round targets and he pulled out his gun and started firing at targets and that sounds really far-fetched to people if they haven't studied hypnosis but i actually (laughs) studied hypnosis intensely because i really wanted to understand how it worked would someone be made to do something that they wouldn't normally do? And the answer is always yes, if you can justify it in their moral sense. So to get Sirhan to fire at a target at a range, he's not killing anybody in his mind. And he's not even seeing what's really happening. And I had a personal experience with that at a, at a hypnosis show one time where I had been sitting and talking next to a woman who was very normal, very... Sane, not a crazy person, and then she ended up being a volunteer in a show. And I thought, oh good, I'll get to see kind of before and after. And during the show, she's given um, a piece of play money and told it was a twenty five thousand dollars check. And so she, during the show, she's all excited, who I won money and blah blah blah. At the end of the show, the hypnotist is like, okay, you're all unhypnotized. You know, thanks everybody. Takes the applause, leaves. I went to talk to the hypnotist about Sirhan and you know, what's possible. He got visibly nervous and left the area. Now he's too young to have been involved in those events, but but his reaction was really interesting to me. But anyway, after they had resisted left the area, I spotted that woman again and she looked really upset. And so I went up to her and I'm like, hey, what's going on? Did you lose your family or something? She goes, no, I have to give this back. And I'm like, let's well, just play money. I mean, it was literally like a monopoly, hundred dollar bill or something, just play money. And she goes, no. no. It's a $35,000 check or whatever it was. And I was so shocked because it was clear that was the first time I realized she's in the grip of a hypnotic illusion. And so I thought maybe I can bring her out of it. My naivety, you know, I thought I could help. Well, I tried to get her to look at it. I'm like, can we both touch the bill? Can I bring it a little closer? You know, can you see what do you see in the upper right? Do you see a circle with 100? And she goes, No. It's a $35,000 check, and I have to give it back. And I just, it broke my heart because she was distressed, and I could not shake her of the hypnotic illusion she was in. So I do understand that Sirhan was programmed to see targets. He pulled out his gun and started firing straight ahead at the targets. And the girl who was with him had put him directly in front of Kennedy. Now, if Sirhan had real bullets, he would have shot Kennedy in the chest in the heart, because that was their relative height, basically. Robert Kennedy was about 5'8", and Sirhan was about 5'4", and by the accounts of, again, the people who saw them both at that time, Sirhan's arm was basically parallel to the ground, maybe firing even a little bit down, but not up. And uh, so he, he would have hit him in the heart or the chest or the stomach, but there were no bullet holes in Robert Kennedy from the front because I believe Serena was firing blanks, and again, I believe this based on numerous eyewitnesses' accounts, including Rafer Johnson, who you mentioned earlier. He said it looked like a cap gun throwing off residue. That was his first comment to the police, and he was one of many. There were like 20 people who said it sounded or looked like a cap gun, a very large number. People described a visible flame coming out of Sirhan's gun. And you don't see a visible flame if you're firing bullets. You only see a flame if you're firing blanks. And the shells that were removed from Sirhan's gun, you know, some people have said, well, you can't make those into blanks. So he couldn't have been fired blanks. You can make any shell into blanks, even the rim fire ones that were retrieved from his gun. And there's a YouTube video showing you how to do it. All right. So, and then somebody's like, well, why would you do that? That's so hard. It's like, well, you'd do it for exactly that reason, because no one would do it, so no one would even think that it happened. Anyway, it's interesting, when a panel re examined the evidence, this isn't even in my book, but in 1975, when there was a court order that the shells would be examined too, that was in court order one, but in court order two, after some revisions, the shells disappeared and were never mentioned again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because maybe the shells would have showed that Sir was firing blights, so they thought, oh, better not let those be investigated. People right. will figure that
0: out. You mentioned Robert Mayhew. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd read where his activities and his organization, as you say, you know, a long-time uh, clandestine espionage activities with this mm-hmm. individual – the 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 old TV program Mission Impossible was based on his company.
1: That's true. That's true. Robert was Robert A. Mayhew Associates, or Rama, as people in the know would call it. Yes, uh, the CI basically asked him to set it up so he could perform as a cutout, so not an official CI employee, but like I said, paid by the CI and on retainer, which to, to me is essentially the same thing. But yeah, they were the go-to for the the crazy things the CIA didn't want blamed on them, So they had Robert Mayhew go out and do it. And interestingly enough, in the Castro uh, plot, in the IG, the Inspector General's report on the Castro plot, which was kind of a CIA internal damage control, they talked about Mayhew. And at one point, somebody says something like, oh yeah, we've got, you know, Mayhew would never go against us, kind of like we got him by the balls. It wasn't that language, but it was kind of words to that effect like we completely control Mayhew. And that's why I know if he was behind the plot to kill Robert Kennedy as the guy who shared an office with Mayhew at the Hughes Corporation in Nevada, and that would be John Meyer. John Meyer literally sat with Mayhew and he said Mayo would get drunk every night and that he would start to spill the beans and talk about things he wasn't supposed to talk about. And it was very clear to him after the fact that Mayhew had been deeply involved in the plot, and when John Meyer read to me and David Talbot, we actually went to his house in Canada, and he pulled out some of his he used to, he was an obsessive note taker he took notes every day of everybody he met what what they talked about, he wrote down like airline ticket numbers and i mean he just he just was one of those types of people he collected all of that, and so in the days right leading up to the assassination. You could tell, as he was reading it to us, both David and I were getting chills, you could tell that Mayhew knew Robert Kennedy was about to be killed. You wouldn't know that beforehand, but after the fact, it was totally clear that's what was going on. And then afterwards, at one point, uh, Mayhew, I mean, uh, Meyer, talked to somebody about saying Caesar, the guard who was standing right at Kennedy's elbow, who probably made the three shots under the arm, uh thane Caesar was also working as a security, like a bodyguard for Howard Hughes under Mayhew. Ah. And Meyer talked about Caesar because he had been reported in one of the newspaper articles as being in the pantry and Mayhew threatened him as like, Don't you ever talk about Caesar again. Don't you ever mention his name And so, you know, Meyer kinda connecting the dots here. It's like, Oh my God, I <laughs> think Mayhew and Caesar just killed Robert Kennedy. So very very interesting story, and again, how can I possibly explain all this? You know, in a short amount of time, people. I want people to read the book, and I'm not trying to sell a book. You can get it from the library. You know, unfortunately, you can probably find a free PDF online. I don't recommend that because there are lots of viruses with that. All local libraries are wonderful and just need your support. And you should go get it there if you don't want to buy it.
0: A lie but too big to fail: the, the real history of the assassination yeah. of Robert Kennedy. At this point, we wait another 150 days or so.
1: Christmas day. Christmas day would be the 120-day period, and I, I assume the the governor could veto it sooner. I mean, that would be the 120 days. He could signal a veto sooner. I don't know how that works. I think he has to wait at least 120 days because, again, if there's any flaw in the, the process or some legal step that wasn't crossed, anything could still happen. At the 30 days from Christmas on, that's where the governor will make his final decision. But I say, please, people, if you care, don't wait. You can Google the governor's address and just write him and say, please follow the law and release Sirhan. Because he's really due. And bonus, he's actually innocent.
0: Lisa, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.